Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio, our Sunday show. My name is Janine Moloff, and I'm the producer and host. Okay, we've got uh, actually about two or three really good stories this week. They Honestly, if I didn't grade prematurely, I would already have white hair from all this nonsense going on, but let's just get started. So last week, I presented an overview of the GOP, a Republican plot, to essentially subvert the last remaining shreds of democracy and really pervert our government into a Trumpian dictatorial hell. This isn't hyperbole, it's accurate. And this is all in a plan, you can call it a white paper if you like, but it's a plan to basically um, infiltrate and dismantle any shred of reasonable government and take over. It's called Project 2025. And it's sponsored by the Heritage Foundation. It's basically a thousand page cookbook, if you will, a legislative cookbook, and it gives detailed instructions on how to dismantle any semblance of rational government while nullifying the Bill of Rights. Now, make no mistake about this. This is a plot, a coup, a conspiracy, if you will, intended to destroy democracy itself. But this has been going on for a while. It's just now they've got, now Heritage Foundation and these other crooked uh far-right lawyers have the right front man, namely Donald Trump, to push it ahead with his lynch mob. Now, ironically, it, you know, we love to blame Trump, and, and let's face it, Donald Trump is, you know, in my opinion, he's a psychopath, he's a sociopath, narcissist, an idiot, uh, you know, he has no conscience, you can go on down the line, but let's also realize that Besides investigating, indicting, and yes, hopefully convicting and incarcerating Donald Trump, we need to go after every hate group that co-sponsored this Project 2025, as well as every attorney that bastardized their their law license. You know, when lawyers when a person becomes a lawyer, they take an oath, and they are essentially, uh, you know, officers of the court. So when they act, when they go to do something that fundamentally seeks to tear apart democracy, yes, they're violating their oath. So Project 2025, it really sounds benign enough, uh, you know, but it isn't, okay? So Project 2025 is a series um, that we're going to have, that I, let me back up a little bit here. Okay, Project 2025, you got this cookbook under the umbrella uh, and sponsorship of the Heritage Society. I'm sorry, the Heritage Foundation. Give me a minute here. And it's so incredibly dangerous. You know, finally, the mainstream read corporate media is talking about it. All right. Keep in mind, the alternative media had been talking about it really since, oh, God, I'd say this past, what, May, June, something like that, when, when word first leaked out. But it's so treacherous. So really treasonous that here at Progressive News Network, we are actually doing a deep dive investigation. This is going to be a series on Project 2025. And we're going to look into this, What you can only call it what it is, a coup, engineered by conservative lawyers that are working feverishly to overthrow democratic rule by granting would-be autocrats like Donald Trump a, you know, get-out-of-jail-free card. So this week, 
uh, our big story, I'm going to focus on the plot to use the U.S. military to attack fellow Americans under the auspices of the Insurrection Act. Now, with Roth Project 2025 on PNN, even though special focus will be on Trump himself, but it will also be on the attorneys uh, that are plotting this illegal overthrow of democracy itself. All right? So, and this is all in light of Trump's latest threats. He gave a disgusting speech on Veterans Day, no less, calling out anybody who is his enemy vermin, which is a term used by Adolf Hitler. And Trump just stated, you know, he intends to incarcerate and murder his political opponents. And I believe when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. So that's our big story, our first story. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> story number two is going to be a little shorter. It's going to focus on the sad joke that is the Supreme Court's alleged code of ethical conduct. I figure we can always all use a good laugh right now. Um, it's so, not only did the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, attempt to gaslight the nation using condescending language that, you know, the public just misunderstood. No, we didn't. We understood quite well that, you know, Clarence Thomas has been taking bribes from Harlan Crow. We understand quite well that Samuel Alito has been, you know, also taking bribes. There's no, it's not rocket science here. So they can huff and puff, but it doesn't matter. So it's not only gaslighting, um, but it's condescending as hell. So then we're also going to have an editorial, okay? Now, the editorial focuses on a recent decision just this past Friday coming from uh, Judge Sarah Wallace's court. Now, this was on the uh, case uh, that was brought by Crew, a, a non-for-profit, to challenge Donald Trump's right to run for or hold office ever again under the, um, you know, under the claim it violates uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment against insurrectionists holding office. Uh, the decision and the alleged reason it came from Judge Sarah Wallace's court, to call it asinine is an understatement. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, I know we said we were going to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. My little Marjorie Greene skipped that this week. We will have our Jackass of the Week Award. And then we also have, I know I put it here. Okay. We will also have a, um, a musical ditty, if you will. It won't be Randy Rainbow. There's another group called The Founders Thing, and this one's a pretty funny one, too. So with no further ado, I'm going to check our time here. Got to make sure we get this together. And on with the show. All right. So. Let's talk about Donald Trump's, you know, we know he uses incendiary language, but there's a plan behind this. You know, those of you that think you can sit out this election because you don't like Joe Biden, I'm not a Joe Biden fan myself. That's not the point. You know, if those of you think you're going to register your protest by refusing to vote or not voting for Joe Biden and voting for a third-party candidate, you know, whether you're angry about the Hamas, Palestine, the Hamas-Israel conflict or whatever, Donald Trump's not going to be any better. He's going to be a lot worse. And this is an instance where there is no time for tantrums. Donald Trump, during a second administration, to say, mainstream media saying he'll be off the guardrails. That's an understatement. 
He intends to establish himself as a dictator, and he's receiving massive support from these dirty lawyers that are working with the Heritage Foundation. Make no mistake about it. Heritage Foundation received a $22 million gift, if you will, to pursue this Project 2025. Okay? And Project 2025, to compare it to the Nuremberg Laws that Hitler established before, right before the Holocaust that gave him a legal, right, a legal pathway to, do, to, to commit the crimes he did, it may not be quite the Nuremberg Laws, but a lot of people don't understand how the law really works. When you have a, a, whether it's a white paper or a contract or whatever, if you have something like, like Project 25, which is a, a, a battle plan, if you will, uh, it isn't just what the document says. It's also what it omits. It's about the very vague language that would not, the very vague language that the, doesn't establish any rights except for the president and the very vague language that doesn't forbid a whole host of abuses that a future president could impose on the people. You have to be really careful about this. So let's move on. So here's a piece here. And, and again, we're going to go into this in gory detail. This is just the beginning. We have a piece here from Media Matters. And it's written by John, I hope I'm saying this right, John Nethel, and research with research contributions from Justina Hollins Borges. And if I mispronounce the name, I apologize. Now, Media Matters is a good non-for-profit, all right? They do solid work, you know, investigating these stories. In fact, they do such solid work that um, they're actually being sued, all right? I, I believe, don't quote me, I believe it's by Donald Trump um, because of the reporting on Project 2025. So this is from Media Matters. The headline reads, Bannon's War Room is the media home of Project 2025 and Trump's retribution plan. It goes on to say, Bannon's show is a staging ground for Trump's plans to gut the civil service and normalize deploying the military against civilians. Okay? This was published earlier this month on November 9th. Now, for those of you who forget who Bannon is, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was the troglodyte, the the monster that just loves Adolf Hitler, okay? So this is about a podcast hosted by Steve Bannon. And according to this report, again, it's the media home of this, what they call, quote, uh, let me read this, quote, the podcast hosted by former Trump advisor Steve, Steve Bannon is the media home of a sprawling right-wing effort known as Project 2025 that's designed to prepare policy papers and staffing assignments should a Republican win the presidency in next year's election. Okay? End quote. It goes on to say, I'm just reading straight from the article itself, quote, Bannon's show, War Room, that's the name of the show, is a hub of election denialism, anti-immigrant bigotry, and promises to carry out retribution against insufficiently loyal Republicans, all hallmarks of former President Donald Trump's first term in office, and his campaign to retake the White House. Although Bannon has at times found himself isolated from Trump, he is once again one of Trump's most important advisors, according to ABC News' Jonathan Carl. And, you know, this is 
again, all documented. Um, Stanton, according to his article, is a leading advocate for the MAGA wing. He's been a champion of Project 2025, um, you know, again, under the auspices of the Heritage Foundation. What Heritage Foundation did, according to Media Matters, is that they, they pushed this initiative, and they brought together more than 80 groups, okay, and that's this documented um, by Project 2025, by Heritage Foundation's own advisory board, okay? You know, the, the, the names are right there. They are proud of this. And you can call it a white paper, but this is really a battle plan to, you know, dismantle democracy itself. You know, right now, people that hold government jobs, otherwise known as civil service, there is no loyalty oath. You can believe what you want. In fact, there's a law that says you can't get involved in politics if you work for the government, which, you know, they want to keep it so that people that are working for the federal government are impartial, okay, because they work for all of us. A big part of Project 2025 would be automatically to do a McCarthy-like or a Hitler-like, you know, loyalty oath, and those that aren't sufficiently loyal, those that maybe don't care one way or another, just happen to be Democrats or they're not Republicans, they will automatically be fired, period. Uh, with no, at all, you'll lose all these experts, and then the plan is to fill these jobs with, um, you know, sycophants that will basically kiss Trump's butt. That's it. You know, we see, we saw how dangerous that could be when towards the, you know, towards the end of the Trump presidency, Trump wanted General Mark Milley to again have our own troops attack fellow American citizens. Mark Milley refused. He said he can't do that. If Heritage Foundation succeeds in Project 2025, there will be no Mark Milley to stop it. Make no mistake about it. The Heritage Foundation is the brain trust behind this, not Trump. And they are spearheading this effort to, you know, erect a dictatorship and... You know, it is a lot like what Hitler did. And every member of Heritage Foundation that's behind this should be held legally accountable, criminally accountable. There will be no Mark Milley to stop this. You know, instead of having, say, medical experts, you know, run, for instance, the National Institute of Health, there might have some doctors there, but they're going to be like Scott Atlas where basically, you know, they're going to do whatever Trump and his lawyers say. You know, this, it would be just like Putin. You would have no honest scholarship. And again, as much fun as it is to blame Trump, Heritage Foundation is behind this with a lot of high-powered lawyers, and they need to be held accountable. Okay? Now, the Washington Post, as well as the New York Times reported on this, and according to the Washington Post, I'm reading again from the Media Matters piece, Quote, according to the Washington Post, Trump and his allies at Project 2025 have, quote, begun mapping out specific plans for using the federal government to punish critics and opponents should he win a second term, with the former president naming individuals he wants to investigate or prosecute and his associates drafting plans to potentially invoke the Insurrection Act on the first day in office to allow him to deploy the military against civil demonstrations, end quote. Now, we had somebody from 
Project 2025 and the Heritage Foundation claim that there is no mention of the Insurrection Act in the actual document. Now, I downloaded the document. I haven't read all 1,000 pages, but that, was, that claim was really not important because even if the Insurrection Act isn't specifically mentioned in the document itself, if the document, which it does do, basically hands over unlimited, essentially unlimited power to the president to control the military, to, control, to be allowed to use the military as his own private army against his critics, to suppress free speech, to suppress our constitutional rights, that's the same thing. You know, for a lawyer from Heritage Foundation to say, well, the Insurrection Act isn't even mentioned in the document, it is asinine. Of course, it, so what if it's not mentioned? The power is there, and the way a president would use the military legally against fellow Americans would be to invoke the Insurrection Act. That's just the way it is. So for Heritage Foundation lawyers to say, well, the Insurrection Act's not mentioned in the document. That's a lie. No, it's not, because the document itself allows the president to attack his critics, not because they committed crime, just because they criticized him, and, and to use the U.S. military. And the only way you can do that legally is by invoking the Insurrection Act. That's it. That's it. Now, the Insurrection Act was... It's an old doc. It's an old law, and I guess maybe it served a purpose, but it does need to be revised and upgraded to fit our times. But you know, Steve Bannon in his podcast War Room, he's really trying, according to his article, to normalize all of these ideas. To normalize the idea of deploying our military against fellow Americans who are peaceably protesting. You know, he's trying to normalize weaponizing DOJ, Department of Justice, against critics. And then, quote, replacing the federal civil service with loyalist reactionaries, end quote. So, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you have to remember, the Trump camp, they keep trying to claim that these cases against Trump, you've already weaponized DOJ against him. Except it's not true. Donald Trump decided to break the law not rocket science. If anyone else had held, taken, much less held on, to top secret documents, some are so sensitive they're beyond top secret and are only allowed to be viewed by certain people with a, quote, designated need-to-know basis. And they have to go into a special room called a skiff that's been swept for all sorts of bugging devices. If anyone else had done that just for taking it, out of the skiff, that would have been enough reason to criminally prosecute them. That's it. This is our national security. He held on to them. And then he tried, then Trump tried to claim that, well, you know, he declassified them. Well, except for one problem. There is one type of document, secret document, that no president can unilaterally declassify, and that's anything pertaining to nuclear. And he showed nuclear documents to some billionaire from Australia. And this came from Trump's old mouth. Nobody weaponized DOJ against Trump. Trump decided, made the decision to break the law. That's it. Okay. But once again, 
the GOP of Trump, they know that except for their rabid MAGA followers, they can't get elected without cheating. And, and these are people that just, I've heard a lot of commentary about trying to understand the psychological mentality or whatever of a MAGA person, hogwash. You know, my mother was a very wise woman, and she just used to say there is nothing meaner than a bigot who's been confronted by their bigotry. She was right. And that's what all this is about. Okay, MAGA is all about white Christian supremacy, uh, anti-gay, and, and the fact is, and male supremacy at that, and it's all about bigotry. Okay? And they would rather believe a pile of lies. And I would say don't waste your time trying to talk, you know, talk in, um, don't waste your time trying to convert a MAGA moron. It won't work. And that's what you're doing. You're wasting your time. Okay? We have to get these swing voters, these young people to vote, whether they like Joe Biden or not. Because this is, you know, democracy is on the ballot. Make no mistake about it. And Project 2025 is the equivalent, I'd say the 21st century equivalent of the Nuremberg Laws. And that's going to be a thesis we're going to be exploring. Maybe not today, but we will. So, um, you know, this article goes on to talk about Jeffrey Clark, you know, and that's the, uh, a crim that's the um, crooked lawyer that tried to make himself acting attorney general in January of 2021. He's been on war room quite a bit, and he is also reportedly, according to the Washington, a document by the Washington Post, quote, leading the work on the Insurrection Act under Project 2025. Uh, end quote. And that was according to, you know, uh, according to a Heritage Foundation spokesperson that told the Washington Post, quote, all right, let me back up here. I hate the way this is written. Let me back it up. So Jeffrey Clark, according to the Washington Post, is reportedly, quote, leading the work on the Insurrection Act under Project 2025. Okay. Now, then you had what I was trying to tell you before. There was a spokesperson from the Washington Post I'm sorry, uh, ah, let me start again. There was a spokesperson from the Heritage Foundation that countered that statement and told the Washington Post that, quote, there are no plans within Project 2025 related to the Insurrection Act are targeting political enemies, end quote. Well, the plans don't have to be clearly stated. If the plan gives a president dictatorial powers to subvert true rule of law, to basically nullify our civil rights, knowing full and and part of it by using the U.S. military against the American public, against his his enemy, what he thinks are his enemies or whatever. The only way legally to do that is to invoke the Insurrection Act. So, you know, I love it who is a heritage spokesperson, but it is the person isn't named. Okay. Now Jeffrey Clark is also, you know widely believed, quote, to be an unindicted co-conspirator in special counsel Jack Smith's indictment against Trump for attempting to overturn the 2020 election, okay? And Clark does have, according to this piece, a record of supporting the use of the military to quash dissent. It goes on to say, quote, in July, Clark appeared on War Room to explain how he had advocated for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act in response to the racial justice protests of 
2020, in the summer of 2020, and this is all as documented by Axios. Uh, there's a direct quote here, Clark told Bannon, quote, I was actually summoned up to a meeting, you know, to discuss how to proceed in terms of that, what I would call an insurrection because it was happening night after night. Clark went on to say, quote, remember that former Attorney, William Gen former Attorney General William Barr is the one who had participated when he was Attorney General in using the Insurrection Act against the L.A. riots after the Rodney King case. Why wasn't that same aggressiveness used against the riots that were all across the country in the summer of 2020, end quote. Um, and then Clark referred to a memo, Jeffrey Clark referred to a memo that he had written and sent to Bill Barr that included, quote, some very creative ideas about how to enforce the law against those rioters. Uh, Clark went on to say, quote, if you want to see the legal advice I gave, it's all blacked out, end quote. But he suggested that, you know, we should deploy the military against civilian protesters. So this is going on here. All right. Um, now, Jeffrey Clark is, just for record, uh, presently a fellow at what's called the Center for Renewing America. And according to this article, the Center for Renewing America is, quote, a MAGA-aligned think tank run by Christian nationalist Russ Vought, another major player in Project 2025 and frequent war room guest. Vought wrote the second chapter of Project 2025's Mandate for Leadership, a combination manifesto and outline detailing how the coalition would approach the next Republican administration. In his chapter, Vought levies a broad critique of career staffers at executive branch departments and agencies, writing that, quote, Many agencies are not only too big and powerful, but, increasing, but also increasingly weaponized against the public and a president who is elected by the people and empowered by the Constitution to govern. Um, now, Barth's argument goes into Steve Bannon's uh, what they call long-running goals, according to the Washington Post, of a, quote, deconstruction of the administrative state, end quote. And the way they would do this, they would change what's called Schedule F. Schedule F is the way federal employees are hired that are, um, you know, they're career people. They are not political appointees, all right? Got to remember, we're a nation of millions and millions of people, and you can't run things without people that know that field. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, see, for instance, somebody was in Bath, I think it was... Um, from Missouri, Ann Wagner, for a while there, that was ambassador, U.S. ambassador in Luxembourg. She knows nothing about diplomacy. That was an example of, um, you know, political graft. You know, we we need professionals that know what they're doing, and this is a way to just destroy it. Um, so, you know, once again, if you have all these loyalists, they're, you're not going to get honest governance. You're not going to get honest research. You're not going to get honest anything because, again, it's like having a dictatorial monarch. You know, Emperor Trump says the sky is green, so the sky must be green. And if you disagree, newsflash, you're gone. Can't run things that way. All right? So... And this is all part of it. 
So people like Mark Milley would be gone. But right now I'm going to check our time here. We're doing okay. So let's talk about the Insurrection Act, all right? A lot of people don't know about it, and I think you should. So this is a piece that explains the Insurrection Act, and it's from the Brennan Center for Justice. Now, the Brennan Center for Justice, just to let you know, I'm reading straight from their site, quote, the Brennan Center for Justice is a nonpartisan law and policy institute. We strive to uphold the values of democracy, yada, yada, yada. Okay, well, here's the thing. They have, you know, a staff and a board of directors, they're, they're attorneys, they know what they're doing, and the Brennan Center is affiliated and works with New York University Law School, both faculties and students, all right? I just wanted you to know it's not something I'm pulling out of the air. So this is a piece, and it was written by Joseph Nunn, about the Insurrection Act Explained. So Joseph Nunn is counsel, which is another word for an attorney or a lawyer, liberty and national security. So Joseph Nunn, I'm reading from this, is counsel, in other words, attorney, in the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program. He focuses on issues surrounding the domestic activities of the U.S. military, including martial law and the Insurrection Act. This man's an expert on it. His work advances policies that allow the president to respond to emergencies without sacrificing the separation of powers or Americans' constitutional rights. Nunn is also the author of the Brennan Center Report, Martial Law in the United States, 2020, and he writes and comments from media outlets and online forums such as Slate, The Hill, and Just Security. He's a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School and Tulane University. I think it's important that you know whoever's writing this has credentials. Take a little drink here. Okay, so let's talk about the insurrection. Remember back in 2014, the summer of 2014 in Ferguson? I remember because I was publishing then with um, UK Progressive. And I did a whole series on Ferguson, not only police abuse, but prosecutorial abuse as well. And I did a deep dive on that one. But in order to do that, I also not just dig through the documents, I wanted to see what was really going on. So I took my little five foot two self down into Ferguson and I went to see what was really happening. And I remember when the governor then, Jay Nixon, a Democrat, called in the National Guard. So while it's true, there were people that lit fires late at night, like around 1, 2 in the morning. That was after most of the protesters had gone home. It, it, frankly, if you're out and about in a community that rolls up their sidewalks yeah, by about 10 or 11, and you're out at 2 in the morning, you're up to no good anyway, let's face that. There isn't that much to do in Ferguson. But during the day and into the evening, the rest of us were peaceable. But you're walking down the street, and then you get to the shopping center where there's a Target and all that, and you see these National Guardsmen. I swear some of them were so buff, they looked like they were, like, majorly, you know, overdosing on steroids. I kid you not. And... You know, you would say hi, and, they, and I'm a little person, and they looked at me like, you know, like I was a thing. And then you would look up, and you saw the drones following us in the sky, and you also saw the snipers that were posted on top of these, like, two- and three-story buildings. 
pointing, I'm assuming, AR-15s at us. Seriously, they brought in tanks. They brought in an LRAD, which is a long-range acoustic device, and it's on this tank-like uh, vehicle, and it can destroy your hearing, okay? They brought in another thing where I think it was like a microwave weapon. This was not good. You know, the National Guard, uh, maybe you know somebody who serves, but my experience with the National Guard are not the good guys. In that instance, they certainly weren't. Seriously. Because if they felt threatened by a little bitty woman like me, I am five foot two, I am small bone, my white hair was showing, had my glasses on, and I posed a threat? I don't think so. But this was bringing the psychotic attitude that we employed in Fallujah and bringing it to Main Street here in the United States. Okay, and this was still the Obama administration, but you know what? Truth is truth. So let's talk about the Insurrection Act. So this is the law that lets, quote, lets the president deploy the military domestically and use it for civilian law enforcement. Okay? And according to Mr. Nunn, it is, quote, dangerously vague and in urgent need of reform. And I agree. So I'm just going to read through this because I am not an attorney. Quote, the Insurrection Act needs a major overhaul. Originally enacted in 1792, the law grants the president the authority to deploy the U.S. military domestically and use it against Americans under certain conditions. While there are rare circumstances in which such authority might be necessary, the law which has been meaningfully updated, I'm sorry, the law which has not been meaningfully updated in over 150 years is dangerously overbroad and ripe for abuse. And before Ferguson, the thing that comes to mind, Kent State. Those little bastards murdered students that were just trying to go to class. Students in Kent State, they didn't have weapons. In fact, just as a little gentle aside, when I was working on my credential, um, you know, before I got into journalism, I was a, a speech-language pathologist in the school setting. And one of my professors, I remember, Dr. Patty Dukes, she was um, like a grad student instructor at Kent State when all this happened. And one of her students was one of the students that was murdered by the National Guard. And the girl was just trying to go to her clinic practicum. And they got her. Multiple bullets, the girl was dead immediately. So don't tell me the National Guard are the good guys because they're not. Not the way they've been employed. So what is the Insurrection Act? So this man, this attorney from Brennan Center, Joseph Nunn, has said the law is old, it's dangerously overbroad, abuse can happen very easily, it hasn't been updated in over 150 years. So again, the Insurrection Act allows the president to use our military inside the United States against fellow Americans to, quote, suppress rebellion or domestic violence or to enforce the law in certain situations, okay? Now, this piece goes on to say the statute implements Congress's authority under the Constitution to, quote, provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions, end quote. Now, a piece goes on to say it is the primary exception 
to the Posse Comitatus Act under which federal military forces are generally barred from participating in civil law enforcement activities, end quote. Okay, so this is what it's about. You know, any of you have loved ones or friends that are in the military, especially in the National Guard, you need to start having some serious conversations with them and let them know if, God forbid, Trump gets in office, if you fire on fellow Americans, you don't have family or friends anymore. You are dead to us. We, are, we, we disown you. That's it. They have to make a choice. Okay, so posse comitatus is basically saying that, you know, you can't use it. the Posse Comitatus Act, and again, it's another piece by, by Joseph Nunn, basically, for most part, prevents a president from using the military as a domestic police force. Okay? All right? So, um, and that's what this is about. The Posse Comitatus Act was passed in 1878 after Reconstruction ended and white supremacists came to political power. Now, though the law, you know, Congress wanted to make sure the federal military wouldn't be used to, um, you know, interfere as these white bigots were establishing Jim Crow in what used to be the Confederacy. Okay? But the Posse Comitatus Act is just one sentence, and here's what it says, quote, Whoever, except in cases and under circumstances expressly authorized by the Constitution or Act of Congress, willing, willfully uses any part of the Army or the Air Force as a posse comitatus or otherwise to execute the laws, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than two years or both. Okay. It's basically saying the president can't use the military against fellow Americans as a police force. Okay even though ironically it was set up to protect, you know, racist bigots, all right? Now, you have to realize something else about all of this. Everywhere there is a dictatorship, the leader, whether it's a president or prime minister or emperor or whatever, they have a private army. Put bluntly, a, a militarized police force, whatever we're going to call it, that they can attack their enemies. There is no true rule of law. Hitler had one. And this is what this goddamn Project 2025, yes, from Heritage Foundation, may they rot in hell. That is what this they want to do. They may not actually mention the Insurrection Act, but they're demanding that a president and officers of the president chooses it have to be loyal only to him can use whatever, including the military, to attack anyone the president says you can attack. And the only way legally you can do that is through the Insurrection Act. So these lawyers, they know better. These spokespersons, they know better. Most of them are attorneys themselves. And so the Insurrection Act is sometimes, going back to that, even though it's referred to as the Insurrection Act of 1807, the actual act itself, according to Mr. Nunn, is what he calls, quote, an amalgamation of different statutes enacted by Congress between 1792 and 1871. Today, these provisions occupy sections 251 through 255 in Title 10 of the United States quote, Code, end quote. 
Now, what does invoking the Insurrection, insurrection Act let the president and the military do? Well, one, it temporarily suspends what we talked about, the Posse Comitatus rule. Let's the president use our military against fellow Americans. And so what does that mean? It can mean anything. According to this article, it says, quote, that might involve soldiers doing anything from enforcing a federal court order to suppressing an uprising against the government, end quote. Um, now, there is a thing called the Stafford Act, which does allow the military to be used to respond to natural disasters or public health crises. And that's what Joe Biden, I think, tried to do. And that's when they actually are there to help. But this isn't what it is. Okay. So let's look at when a president can invoke the Insurrection Act, because uh, this piece here on the Insurrection Act from Brennan Center was written in 2022. Obviously, under Project 2025, they just want to give a blank check to Donald Trump. That's it. Okay, make no mistake about it. So here's the section that says, what does invoking the Insurrection Act allow the president and military to do? And it's, you know, a good question. Let's look at it. Again, under normal circumstances, you know, no president or governor can, you know, no president can use the U.S. military. That includes federal armed forces and National Guard troops that are called into federal service from, quote, taking part in civilian law enforcement. Okay? And so let me read this. I'm going to read this paragraph to you. Quote, under normal circumstances, the Posse Comitatus Act forbids the U.S. military, including federal armed forces and National Guard troops who have been called into federal service from taking part in civilian law enforcement. It goes on to say, this prohibition reflects an American tradition that views military interference in civilian government as being inherently dangerous to liberty, end quote. Now, when a president invokes the Insurrection Act, the Capace Comitatus rule is suspended. It doesn't, it doesn't count anymore. And, you know, that's what we're getting to. And in theory, this Insurrection Act should only be used in a, a terrible crisis, okay? Now, keep in mind, Donald Trump and his accolades are so bigoted, he wouldn't have used the Insurrection Act on the January 6th insurrectionists that were there to commit murder and overthrow the government, but he would use it against little people like me who dared to say, you know, I disagree. Okay, this is, this is an invitation to a presidential dictatorship of, yes, Hitlerian proportions. Um, so there are three sections of the Insurrection Act when a president can use it. And they're set up for different situations. Here's the problem. The law's requirements, you know, you know, when a president can use it and not use it, are very poorly explained, very poorly articulated. And it's so poorly articulated that it kind of leaves it up to the discretion of whoever the president is. And that's frightening. So Section 251, quote, allows the president to deploy troops if a state's legislature or governor, if the legislature is unavailable, request federal aid to suppress an insurrection in that state. This provision is the oldest part of the law and the one that has most often been invoked, end quote. 
How would Trump use it? Remember that call to the Georgia Secretary of State? I just need 11,000 votes. Under what Project 2025 would do, establishing a presidential dictatorship, he wouldn't have to call and ask. He'd just send the troops in. That's what we're talking about here. They would be like Nazi SS troops. Now, it goes on to say, quote, while Section 251 requires state consent, allegedly, so I take that back a little bit, Sections 252 and 253 allow the president to deploy troops without a request from the affected state, even against the state's wishes. Okay. So there's, it contradicts itself. It goes on to say, Section 252 permits deployment in order to, quote, enforce the laws of the United States or to suppress rebellion, end quote, whenever, quote, unlawful obstructions, combinations, or assemblages or rebellion make it impracticable to enforce federal law in that state by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, end quote. What constitutes illegal rebellion or unlawful obstructions or unlawful assemblages? How many times... Have you seen police lie and say, you can't be on the sidewalk? I've had it happen in my own neighborhood. Okay? This is, that's where when documents are written in very vague language, you have to look at not only what the document says, but what it doesn't say, what it does not forbid. Because it's in that wiggle room, that's where these bastard lawyers carve out an exception to allow you know, Nazis like Trump to abuse the rest of us. Okay, so this piece goes on to say Section 253 has two parts. The first, and I'm reading directly from this quote, the first allows the president to use the military in a state to suppress, quote, any insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful combination or conspiracy, quote, so hinders the execution of the laws, end quote, that any portion of the state's inhabitants are deprived of a constitutional right and state authorities are unable or unwilling to protect that right. Presidents Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy relied on this provision to deploy troops to desegregate desegregate schools in the South after the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Brown v. Board of Education, end quote. So it's not that the Insurrection Act within reason is totally wrong, but it has to be... The Insurrection Act has to have more specific guidelines is what it is. It needs to be updated. These these particular statements are just too vague. There needs to be an actual procedural overhaul that lists when it can be used and when it is forbidden to be used. Okay? Now, that was the first part of Section 253 of the Insurrection Act. It goes on to say, quote, the second part of Section 253 permits the president to deploy troops to suppress, quote, any insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful combination or conspiracy in a state that, quote, opposes or obstructs the execution of the laws of the United States or impedes the course of justice under those laws, end quote. And Joseph Nunn goes on to say, quote, this provision is so bafflingly bafflingly broad that it cannot possibly mean what it says or else it authorizes the president to use the military against any two people conspiring to break federal law, end quote. And I think that's exactly what it does. And then the next part of this, you know, the next part of this discussion about the Insurrection Act 
is the question, quote, who decides when conditions for deployment have been met? It's a good question. It goes on to say, quote, nothing in the text of the Insurrection Act defines the following terms, insurrection, rebellion, domestic violence, or any of the other key terms used in setting forth the prerequisites for deployment. It goes on to say, quote, absent statutory guidance, the Supreme Court decided early on that this question is for the president alone to decide. This is scary. Let me read that sentence again. You know, this is the question, who decides when the Insurrection Act can be used? Quote, absent statutory guidance, in other words, without the law specifically stating anything, the Supreme Court decided early on this question is for the president alone to decide, end quote. And then Nunn goes on to cite an eight, a case, Martin v. Mott, that was decided in 1827, and in that the court ruled, quote, that the authority to decide whether an exigency requiring the militia to be called out has arisen belongs exclusively to the president, and his decision is conclusive upon all other persons. That's so effing dangerous, I can't believe it. Now, there was another Supreme Court case that's mentioned here called Sterling v. Constantine, and it was decided in 1932, okay? from 90-something years ago. It goes on to say, quote, however, this precedent might prevent judges from second-guessing whether the president is allowed to invoke the Insurrection Act in response to a given situation. The Supreme Court clarified in Sterling v. Constantin that courts may still review the lawfulness of the military's actions once deployed. In other words, federal troops are not free to violate other laws or trample on constitutional rights just because the president has invoked the Insurrection Act, end quote. And that all sounds lovely, except for one thing. Once the troops have come in and murdered people and terrorized the public, you know, snipers on top of buildings, the damage has already been done. Those lives lost at Kent State aren't going to be brought back because the court can review whether or not what the military did was lawful. Now, the next question is, is invoking the Insurrection Act the same as declaring martial law? According to the article, no. Um, the Insurrection Act does not authorize martial law, okay? And it goes on to say, quote, the term martial law has no established definition, okay? That's, and I'm going to stop here for a second. That's scary because martial law should have not only an established definition, but specific criterion that must be met. This is, again, that's why Project 2025 is so dangerous. There's a lot of vague language in it, a lot of really prejudice accusations in the document. Um, you know, once again, you would basically, you know, who's to say who's violated law then? It would be based on somebody's whims. Okay, so now it says here under current law, no, the president has no authority to declare martial law, and that's from Brennan Center as well, although I kind of question that. There, are, there were some secretive uh, executive orders that have been coming down really from the last 50 years that allow, for instance, Obama was, a, his, his DOJ 
argued for the right to, you know, detain anyone if they're called an enemy combatant. He continued the Bush policies. I mean, you've got to tell the truth. So, again, all this needs to be defined and, and clarified, and it's not. And that's my big problem with it because it is totally unreasonable to ask to demand people obey the law when they don't know what the law is. That's, that's insane. Now, the Insurrection Act has been used several times in our history. George Washington and John Adams used it. Abraham Lincoln used it at the beginning of the Civil War. Ulysses Grant used it. Um, other presidents, including Andrew Jackson, Rutherford Hayes, and Grover Cleveland, used it to, um, they put it nicely, to intervene in labor disputes, but on the side of employers. So basically, Rutherford Hayes and Grover, Grover Cleveland you know, invoke the Insurrection Act to attack strikers viciously. That's what it boiled down to. Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson all used it, too, during the Civil Rights Movement to enforce, quote, federal court orders, desegregating schools, and other institutions in the South. When was the Insurrection Act last invoked? In 1992. Governor of California requested military aid from President George H.W. Bush, and this was the, you know, the Rodney King protest. Okay. The next question is the last one here, and it's an important one. How should the Insurrection Act be reformed? And again, it's just another couple of paragraphs. I'm just going to read it because it tells it right there. Quote, the lack of clear standards within the Insurrection Act itself, combined with the Supreme Court's ruling in Martin v. Mott, I'm going to stop here for a second, where basically it says the president has, you know, total control over it, absolute power on this, which is bull. Um, quote, has created a situation where the president has almost limited, limitless discretion to deploy federal troops in cases of civil unrest. Such unbounded authority to use the military domestically has always been dangerous. In the 21st century, it is also unnecessary and untenable. The United States has changed profoundly in the 150 years since the Insurrection Act was last amended, as have the capabilities of state and federal civilian authorities and the expectations of the American people. The Insurrection Act, arguably the most potent of the president's emergency powers, should reflect those realities, end quote. Uh, and it goes on to say this, excuse me, quote, to address these concerns, Congress should amend the Insurrection Act to define more clearly and precisely what situations may trigger it. Congress also should, should establish mechanisms for review of the president's decision that will guard against abuse while still preserving the president's flexibility in a crisis, end quote. This is the power that Project 2025 wants to unleash on those of us who disagree with Donald Trump from day one. There won't be these guardrails. They won't have these nice little discussions. They want to be able to just march troops down Main Street. And since Martin V. Mott, that means the president could order for them to shoot on sight. They would be LTK, licensed to kill. You know, just because Project 2025's document doesn't state that expressly, by granting a president unlimited power, and by saying he could, you know, have total discretion when to use it, that's the same thing. Okay? People need to understand how the law really works. 
So that's why this is so incredibly dangerous. And this is something that, you know, the GOP of Trump wants to unleash, you know, the hell of Fallujah on Main Street. No accident. And you know who they're going to go after. Okay? You know they're going to go after minorities, uppity women, the LGBTQ community, <coughs> religious minorities, and anyone who just dares question what the Fuhrer Trump has to say. Okay? So this is like part one in our examination of Project 2025. Uh, it won't always be our big story, but we will do a segment on it continually because I want to make sure you guys understand this and what are the implications. And this goes hand in hand. Let me check our time here with, you know, the way Trump wants to, you know, implement revenge. Okay? You know, he has a statement of revenge. There's, there's no guesswork here. Got a piece here from The Guardian. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is from a couple weeks ago. All right. The Guardian is a British newspaper. This is a piece written by Sam Levine. The headline is, Trump suggests he would use FBI to go after political rivals if elected in 2024. Trump says, if I happen to be president and I see somebody doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Okay. Um, and Trump made the comments during the interview with the um, television network, Spanish language television network, Univision. The host was Enrique Acevedo, um, and this is as documented by, okay, it was on YouTube, my bad. We tried Sorry about that. But... Sorry about that. Um, and so the host of the Univision program said, quote, you say they've weaponized the Justice Department, they weaponized the FBI, would you do the same if reelected? And Trump said, quote, they've already done it, but they want to follow through on this, yeah, it could certainly happen in reverse. They've released the genie out of the box. Okay? And Trump goes on to say, when you're president, you've done a good job, you're popular, you don't go after them so you can win an election. They've done indictments in order to win an election. They call it weaponization. But, yeah, they, they have done something that allows the next party, I mean, if somebody, if I have to be president, I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say go down and indict them. Mostly they would be out of business, they'd be out, they'd be out of the election, end quote. So we don't need to go into this in gory detail. Trump has promised retribution. He has told uh, his, again, rabid, frothing followers that, this will be the final battle. And make no mistake about it, these people despise democracy. And they despise democracy, the average Trumper, because, again, they want to move things back to, if not the 1950s, maybe the 1920s, where only white Christian males have any rights. And they want to be able to abuse the rest of us with legal impunity. So if you have friends or family and they pull this crap, well, they're, you know, they're MAGA, but they're nice people. No, they're not like the bad ones. Yeah, they are. They're just letting someone else do their dirty work for them. Make no mistake about it. Okay? So let's go back here. And checking our time. Okay, I'm going to take a little break here, and I will be back in a second.
Okay, and we're back. All righty. Let's go on to story number two. This is about the Supreme Court's new code of ethics. Talk about something that's funny. So let me go to my documentation here. This is an article from Vox. If you get a chance to read Vox, you know, Vox is a really good journalistic source. Of course, if you get a chance to read Nation of Change, where I publish, please do, as well as your Razor Review. But this is from Vox, and it's from a writer called Ian Milheiser. I do a lot of quoting of Milheiser's. This guy is really good. Uh, so let me talk about Milheiser first. He's a senior correspondent at Vox. But here's his bio. Ian Milheiser is a senior correspondent at Vox, where he focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy in the United States. Before joining Vox, Ian was a columnist at Think Progress. Among other things, he clerked for Judge Eric L. Clay of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and served as a Teach for America Corps member in the, in the Mississippi Delta. I'll forgive him for the Teach for America crap. Um, he received a BA in philosophy from Kenyon College and a JD, magnus cum laude, from Duke University, where he served as senior note editor on the Duke Law Journal and was elected to the Order of the Quaff. He is the author of two books on the Supreme Court, one titled Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted, and the second book is The Agenda, How the Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. So this is, I, I quote him a lot when I write, um, you know, stories about what I call judicial capture. So he wrote this piece, and it ran November 14th, a couple weeks ago. Well, actually a week ago, excuse me. And the headline is, the Supreme Court's new ethics code is a joke. The code is so weak that it serves to legitimize Clarence Thomas's corruption. It is literally worse than nothing. And it, it really is. It, it's condescending as hell, all right? Um, so, you know, Monday the 13th, I think it was, Supreme Court released this new code of conduct. And it was supposed to address, you know, ethical principles, go to Supreme Court justices, claim they've always followed, okay? And, but they also argued that, quote, the only reason such a code is necessary is because the court's critics don't understand how things actually work. Okay, that's the condescending part. Um, now, this is the first time in history that the court, the Supreme Court, has published even a hint of a formal ethics code. Um, you have to understand, every other court has an alleged ethics code. Now, do they always follow it? No. But they at least have it. And, you know, we have a problem these days where if it's the president, you know, you've got Trump, for instance, claiming he can pardon himself, which makes a president wants to pardon themselves, judge, jury, and what, executioner? I don't know. Um, and then you've got the Supreme Court doing the same thing. You know, they're going to police themselves? That's, that, that's, not, that's not holding anybody accountable. But here's the quote that's really, it, it's not just condescending, condescending and gaslighting, but it's insulting. But here's the quote from the document. Quote, for the most, I'm going to use an accent that's kind of highfalutin. Okay. For the most part, these rules and principles are not new. Okay. End quote. So this is the introduction to the code. And then the code goes on claiming that, quote, the absence of a code has led in recent years to the misunderstanding. Start again. I'm sorry. Having a disfluent moment. Again. Quote. 
For the most part, these rules and principles are not new. The absence of a code has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other justices in this country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. Okay, end quote. So this new code, according to the justices, was meant to, quote, dispel this supposed misunderstanding, and the justices wrote, and it, quote, largely represents the codification of principles that we have long regarded as governing our conduct, end quote. I have one thing to say to that. Bullshit! Bullticky shit! I can't believe... The, the arrogance of this is beyond the pale. The Supreme Court needs to acknowledge their duty, their oath is to the Constitution. The same for a president is to the Constitution. The same for members of Congress. Their duty is to the Constitution. Didn't mean to yell, but it really makes me mad. And so why do they feel the need to do this? Well, you've got Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court judge, you know, he's accepted gifts from billionaire Harlan Crow, uh, including a trip that, quote, could have exceeded $500,000 in value, according to ProPublica. Now, this goes on to say, quote, the code also locks in place the same rules Thomas followed during his frequent summer trips to Crow's private resort in the Andirondacks. The code, quote, represents the codification of principles that Thomas followed when he bought a $267,230 RV that was underwritten by Anthony Welters, another of the many wealthy individuals who have lavished gifts on Thomas since he joined the court, end quote. Now, according to ProPublica, these gifts include the following, quote, at least 38 destination vacations, including a previously unreported voyage on a yacht around the Bahamas, 26 private jet flights, plus an additional eight by helicopter, a dozen VIP passes to professional and college sporting events, typically perched in the skybox, two stays at luxury resorts in Florida and Jamaica, and one standing invitation to an uber-exclusive golf club overlooking the Atlantic coast, end quote. Now, this code goes on to say that it seeks to dispel any impression that the justices, quote, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rule. And according to Milheiser, the author of this article, he thinks that this particular part may have been created when Justice Samuel Alito, quote, accepted a $100,000 private jet flight to Alaska from Republican billionaire Paul Singer, where Alito stayed in a fishing lodge that ordinarily charges more than $1,000 a day to guests, and where Alito was reportedly served wine that cost more than $1,000 a bottle. End quote. Damn. That must be some damn fine hooch to cost $1,000 for one single bottle. Good Lord. You can see why people are mocking this. And then the Supreme Court had the gall to literally call the public stupid because, you know, it's not that the justices, some of the justices were doing things that could be construed as influence peddling, okay, because it is, uh, in my opinion. But the public's too stupid. We misunderstood. No, we didn't misunderstand anything. Okay? So this is what we're talking about, this, this blatant insult to all of us. Um, the thing is this. 
let me go on here. So it goes on to say, quote, the new code, which again, by its own explicit terms, largely seeks to put in writing the same rules that these justices followed when they accepted luxury gifts from major Republican Party donors. In other words, it's the same nonsense, non-rules that let them influence peddle, that let these justices sell their influence. Basically, these justices accepted bribes, put bluntly. Uh, it goes on to say, quote, it is also almost entirely unenforceable. Quote, if a litigant or one of the more than 300 million Americans governed by the Supreme Court believes that one of the justices is violating the newly written down rules, there is no mechanism to enforce these, those rules against the justice. End quote. In fact, it goes on to say, quote, indeed the code is sometimes quite explicit about the fact that most of it has no enforcement mechanism. While it contains about three pages of rules governing when a justice must recuse themselves from a case, in other words, if a justice recuses themselves, they say, I can't, I can't judge this case because I have a conflict of interest somewhere. Um, for example, um, an official commentary attached to the code states that, quote, individual justices rather than the court decide recusal issues, end quote. So if a justice decides to hear a case that the code says they should not hear, nothing happens because each individual justice is a final word. So in other words, when, they're, when, they're, when the code is saying that, quote, individual justices rather than the court decide recusal issues, that's basically not only, not only saying, hello, Fox, meet Henhouse, bon appetit, but don't worry, Booby, you didn't have enough. We can give you some more hens. You just fill up, baby doll. Okay, that, there, there is no accountability here because they get to decide. And if you have a justice like Clarence Thomas that I think accepts bribes, there's nothing to stop him. He can say, no, I'm not, and there's no accountability. This is asinine. Now, here's the really sad part, because some of the justices, like Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, up till now I have a lot of respect for. And so, so to Mayor, you know, and Kagan, but they all signed it. It says here, right here, quote, all nine of the justices who signed their names to this code should be ashamed of themselves. The new code imposes no meaningful obligations on the justices. It explicitly disclaims any desire to do so. It accuses, of course, critics, again, of misunderstanding the justice's past behavior when it really isn't hard to understand the ethical implications of taking a $500,000 gift from a major political donor. And so the new rules do nothing whatsoever to limit Thomas's corrupt behavior. Now, it's a 15-page document. It has three parts. Um, you know, and we can go into it more, but we're running low on time. Uh, we will talk about it again, but I wanted you to, let me check the time here. I wanted you, yeah, to get a, a feeling for this. It really is asinine. We will probably do a story in more detail about this, but I wanted you to, you know, to get this. Now, this is, there, there are, well, let me back up a little bit. There are a few things. So, for instance, the new rules do have a provision limiting gift acceptance, but the provision on, at surface, on the surface looks like it has some, some pretty stro uh, strong limits on the justices. Quote, the official commentary in the rules clarifies that this provision does not actually do anything to change the status quo. 
So it says here, quote, briefly the new rule states that a justice should, quote, should comply with the restrictions on acceptance of gifts and the prohibition of, on solicitation of gifts set forth in the Judicial Conference regulations on gifts now in effect, end quote. If taken seriously, that would be a very significant restriction indeed, because the Judicial Conference regulations on gifts state that judges are, quote, not permitted to accept a gift from anyone whose interests may be substantially affected by the performance or non-performance of the judge's official duties. This judge is supposed to be impartial, you know, umpire, uh, impartial referees, basically. Okay? But it, it's really superficial. Keep in mind, the Supreme Court has the power to overrule any decision by Congress or president these justices are unelected. They have a lifetime job if they want it. Um, you know, you could argue that all Americans have interests that could be substantially affected. Okay? Something that we're going to be talking about more, but I wanted you to get an idea of how ludicrous this particular new story is, and it is ludicrous. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. You're right there. And we're back. Okay. So we dealt with that. Now we're going to go into our editorial. <clears throat> and then we'll have our jackass of the week. And then we will have a musical parody. It's not Randy Rainbow this time. This is from a group called The Founders Sing. And it is titled We Are Cowardly. Okay. So we're nearing the end of the show. So here's the editorial. As you know, Crew, which is a non-for-profit, brought uh, one of several, well, there were several lawsuits. You know, we have the 14th Amendment, Section 3. There's a reason why Trump hates the 14th Amendment, and it's the insurrection clause. And basically it said, and we talked about the show before, that if an office holder participates in any sort of insurrection, they should, they should be barred from ever holding office, any office again. And, you know, it pretty much seems pretty pretty obvious, right? And Trump has run his mouth so much that, you know, he pretty much admitted that, yeah, he knew he was participating and inciting an insurrection. He knew he lost the election, okay? But he had no intent of, you know, relinquishing power. So this is a ruling that came out of Colorado from Judge Sarah Wallace, who was actually appointed by a Democratic governor, Jared Polis. And... This is an asinine ruling. In fact, it wasn't just asinine. It was a height of cowardice on the part of the judge, and it sets up a dangerous precedent, namely that the President of the United States is above the law. So there's, here's a piece, uh, an analysis in Newsweek. Now, I'm not a big fan of Newsweek these days since it's been taken over, but this one's pretty good, okay? This is written by Thomas Kika. The headline is, Legal Analysts React After Judge Finds Trump Engaged in an Insurrection. So Judge Sarah Walls, she determined that, yes, Donald Trump was an insurrectionist. He engaged in an insurrection 
you know, he's guilty of that. But he can still run. And this is what happened here. This is so stupid, okay? Um, so this was a couple days ago, Friday. I'm going to read straight from this. Quote, District Judge Sarah B. Wallace ruled on this challenge in Colorado, giving the former president both a win and a rebuke at the same time. While Wallace, who was appointed by the state's Democratic governor, Jared Paulus, ruled that Trump could remain on the state's ballot, she also concluded that he, quote, engaged in an insurrection due to his actions in the wake of the 2020 election, giving fuel to a potential appeal against her decision. Okay? Now, the judge, you know, basically what she said is this. Okay, let me back up a little bit here. They said you can't remove him from the ballot under Section 3 of, of the 14th Amendment because, which would disqualify him from seeking elected office, because, yes, he, he, he committed insurrection, but the, um, the amendment doesn't specifically list the president as an office holder. I kid you not. Now, this, this is really... Just it, it gets juicy. So here, I, I'm going to go to this. Give me a second here. Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment. Okay, it's the disqualification clause. Uh, let's see, and it just specifically says the following. Um, let's see. Well, wait a minute. Disqu Give me a second. I lost it. Hold on. Okay, here it is. Section 3, 14th Amendment, disqualification from holding office. This is what it actually says. Quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but Congress may, by, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Now, what Judge Wallace said is, yeah, Donald Trump committed insurrection, but this doesn't specifically list the president. So, even though he was president of the United States, he wasn't an actual office holder. So he can still be listed. He can still run. I kid you not. Okay, that, that and, and the danger in that ruling, there are some that are saying, well, you know, she just set him up for an appeals court to strike down her, you know, her judgment. But my fear is that this is the exact theory that Trump's lawyers were pushing, including through the, Fer the Heritage Foundation, where they were saying, no, the president doesn't count under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because it's not specifically listed. Now, you talk about using the letter of the law to undermine what the law should be, which is a statement of principles of fair play. And... I don't believe Judge Wallace is that stupid. I think she's that cowardly. I don't know if Trump's 
you know, rabid lynch mob threatened her or what, but this this particular judgment on her part is beyond the pale. It, it, this should have been an easy slam dunk, and I'm not the only one saying it. Constitutional scholars such as J. Michael Littig, who is very much a Republican, and Professor Lawrence Tribe, very much a Democrat, have said the same thing I'm saying. And again, we will discuss it more in the future, but we just only have so much time. Okay? Um, and, and this is really outrageous, okay? This, you know, she said he's guilty of insurrection, but because the four, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment didn't read like a grocery list listing the president specifically, it doesn't count for him, okay? That type of lack of logic is like saying, hmm, a German shepherd um, is a type of dog. Okay, dogs have four legs and a tail. Well, let me back up. It's like saying, basically, beagles are dogs. Pit bulls are dogs. Poodles are dogs. But a German shepherd is different. It's not the same as the other, so it's not a dog. It doesn't work that way. Okay? So... You know, there were, one of the responses came from J. Michael, and I love it, in his Twitter account. And Judge Liddick, again, major conservative, but he's honest. Okay, I don't have to agree with the man politically, but he's honest. And he called this ruling out of the S9 as well. Liddick wrote the following, quote, It is unfathomable as a matter of constitutional interpretation that the President of the United States is not an office under the United States. Okay, end quote. And keep in mind, Luddick was an advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, ironically, and he wrote this Friday. Luddick went on to say, quote, is even more constitutionally unfathomable, if that's possible, that the former president did not take an oath to support the Constitution of the United States within the meaning of Section 3 when he took the presidential oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, later on, Judge Luddick added the following, quote, the Constitution is not a suicide pact with America's democracy. Bang. I agree totally. I'm going to say it, read it again. Ludwig wrote, quote, the Constitution is not a suicide pact with America's democracy. Indeed, it is the very contrary in this instance. It is plain that the entire purpose of Section 3, confirmed by its literal text, is to disqualify any person who, having taken an oath to support the Constitution, engages in an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution. The former president did exactly that when he attempted to overturn the 2020 election and remain in office in rebellious violation of the Constitution's executive vesting clause, which prescribes the four-year term of the presidency, end quote. Okay, he's right. Now, Lawrence Tribe, who is a constitutional scholar in a little place called Harvard University Law School, um, also criticized Judge Wallace's ruling and wrote the following, quote, Judge Wallace held that anyone but a former president who did what she found Trump did, take an oath to the Constitution and then break that oath by engaging in a violent insurrection, could never again run for any public office. So much for nobody being above the law, end quote. So I agree. Um, George Conway, Kellyanne's former husband, and again, you know, another conservative, but he's telling the truth. He wrote, quote, you mean you think it seems odd that the drafters of the 14th Amendment would have decided that an insurrectionist should hold no federal office other than the presidency? Or that the president is not an off, um, 
are that the president is not an officer of the United States under a constitution that explicitly refers to the presidency as an office, okay? End quote. All right. Conservative legal analyst Jonathan Turley, here he is a conservative, wrote the following. Quote, while I'm a critic of Trump's speech and actions on that day, I still believe the court is completely wrong on the First Amendment. It is common for political leaders to call for protests at the federal or state capitals when controversial legislation or actions being taken. Indeed, um, in past elections, Democratic members also protest elections and challenge electoral votes in Congress. It's true. Turley continues, quote, the fact is that Trump never actually called for violence or a riot. Um, rather, he urges supporters to march on the Capitol to express opposition. Okay. Um, so I got that wrong. I didn't read this particular portion in advance. I apologize. So Turley is defending it, okay? But, you know, Turley is trying to claim that, you know, he was, Trump was just encouraging his followers to express their, you know, their opinions. Most of us don't use free speech coding in AR-15, though. Okay. So, you know, once again, you know, you've got J. Michael Lettig as well as um, um, Lawrence Tribe calling out Judge, La um, Judge Wallace's asinine ruling, and it is asinine. Okay. Wanted you to know about that. Okay. All righty. So now we have the Jackass of the Week Award. Welcome to PNN's Jackass of the Week Awards, where we celebrate jackassery at its highest level. Bray on, Jack and Jenny. Bray on, you dumbass. Okay. So this week, our Jackass of the Week Award goes to Senator Mark Wayne Mullen. Gotta wonder about that name. This guy, he was in, I think it was a committee. The committee chair was Bernie Sanders. And this guy, he was a former, uh, like, mixed martial arts champion, all right? And he's built like an ape. He really is. And um, which is fine if you like that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, he got into it with the witness who was a Teamsters leader. And apparently these two men have a history. In which case, Mark Wayne Mullen stood up, you, you want to take me on right now? You want to take me on? Let's throw down. And the Teamsters guy's going, bring it. And he goes, well, then stand up. And the Teamsters guy goes, well, you stand up. At which point, Bernie Sanders, bless him, said, told Mullen, sit down already. Okay? I mean, the embarrassment, um, just the idea, these people are just getting violent. Now, if it had been me, and again, I'm a little person. I'm five foot two. I don't even know if I'm still that. And, I'm, you know, I'm a little bitty woman. And, you know, I did call Mullen's office and say, well, Okay, you don't like libs. I'm a lib, so if I come and question you, are you going to want to throw down with my little five foot two self at 64 years old? You know, because I would have just said, hold that thought, and I would have filmed them, and then I would have pressed criminal charges against Senator Mullins. That's all. Because, you know, a lot of these politicians, they think that they have qualified immunity against anything, and they don't. They have qualified immunity from civil charges. They don't have qualified immunity from 
criminal charges. So if he decides he's going to attack someone, yes, jackass can go to jail. So for excellent in jackassery, Senator Mark Wayne Mullins wins our Jackass of the Week Award. Bray on, Mark Wayne. Bray on. You never sounded more intelligent. Uh There you go. All righty. So now we have one more thing tonight. Give me a little drink here. Hmm. Hope you learned something. We're going to move on now. This is a musical parody. I wish you could see the actual video itself. Um, I am toying with the idea of turning the podcast into a video podcast. Not that I like being photographed. I hate it. But there's things you could see more directly. But it'll take a while. Um, so this is a musical parody. Normally we use Randy Rainbow, who I think is brilliant. But this one is from a group called The Founders Sing, and it's to the tune. Remember the old tune, we are family, bum, 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 bum. Well, this is we are cowardly. And in the picture you see Nikki, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, uh, uh, Ramaswamy, DeSantis, um, who else? Um, you know, all the contenders, Tim Scott. And they're all being led, you can see the back of the head, Donald Trump in cartoon form. So I hope you enjoy it. Oh, 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 oh,
for tonight. It is the first segment of our series on Project 2025, uh, where we talked in some more detail about not only the plans to use illegally use the Insurrection Act against peaceable protesters or anyone who dares to just disagree with His Majesty Donald Trump, but what the Insurrection, is, Insurrection Act is, why it has problems, and we're going to continue. We're going to tap into that nonstop. Now, we won't necessarily have a big story on Project 2025 every single time, but we will have a segment. It's important. You need to understand that Heritage Foundation, in conjunction with like 80 different groups that call themselves conservatives that aren't, these are radical, the radical anti-democracy, neo-Nazi bastards, call them what they are. And we have to get everyone out to vote. But it isn't just Trump. This didn't happen in a vacuum. I started warning about this when the Tea Party surfaced back in 08. This is really about the fact that you have people call themselves conservatives, but in essence they are Nazis put bluntly. And I would urge, I mean, I personally don't own a gun. Um, that's my own personal choice. But I would urge every minority, um, everybody who would be targeted by the Nazis of the GOP under Trump to not only get a gun, preferably an AR-15 and lots of high-velocity bullets, but also become a crack shot. Only thing that's going to stop these lunatics this, these, these MAGA, these rabid MAGA morons, is the understanding that if they start a civil war, we'll end it, put bluntly. The only thing that stops these childish people is the promise and, the, and delivering retribution against them if they attack democracy and attack the U.S. Constitution. That's it. You know, uh, you know, I voted for Barack Obama twice, but some of this is also his fault. Because when he went in and there, were, there was a push from the left to say, look, George Bush broke some serious laws and, you know, he put democracy in, you know, in jeopardy. What did we get from Obama? We're not going to look back. We're going to go forward. No. See, that's what emboldened Trump. The more you let the, these people get away with it, the more they're going to push. So... We have to have difficult conversations with our friends, alleged friends and family, and they need to know, you know, you need to demand, are you for Trump, yes or no? And if they hem and haul, you have your answer. <clears throat> and then they have to know you're done with them. That's it. We just have to. And, you know, all this hand-wringing in the corporate media about, well, you know, these people, they just, you know, they've been in a cult. No, they haven't. They're bigots. They're not in a cult. Maybe they have cult-like conditions, but the fact is they, they're bigots. 
That's it. They're adults, and I believe in holding adults responsible for their actions. So I'm not going to listen to that crap. So I hope you learned something from it. Please tune in. We're going to be talking more in different segments about Project 2025. This is a blueprint for establishing a presidential dictatorship, and you need to tell everybody you know. Uh, we don't have a like button yet, I don't believe. Please, I'm going to get one. Please follow it. Please put repost this because we don't have an advertising budget. Uh, also, check out my writing. All you do is Google my name, Janine Moloff, and my writing, not, not only my old writing on Huffington Post and some others, but also more up-to-date writing, both on Nation of Change and Eurasia Review. With that, I say good night and bless us and let's solidarity. We have got to, we have got to end Trumpism. We just do. The democracy we save is our own. Good night and bless us. We're going to need it.